Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Borinaf of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello everyone and welcome back to the On Air podcast. We hope that you had a lovely week while we took the week off. We hope you didn't miss us too much, but we're back so don't no need to worry and we're kind of going a bit old school this week I think when we started off the podcast we did a lot of current affairs and then as time went on and people were doing less and we'd started to you know topics started to come up that we already talked about we started doing more of like these themes where we talked about lots of royal families or stuff throughout history that all related to the same theme but this week we are back with full like current affairs topical um you know what's going on this week stuff and it's the first time in like an entire year where there's been <laughs> enough that's happened in one week we've gone we could just do that yeah without somebody dying so far so far <laughs> yeah, yeah I keep doing this famous last words <laughs> yes so we're going to start off with some news on the coronation and I'm just going to spitball spitball that's not the word um <laughs> I'm just going to spitball a few um, things. So I've been thinking of what to call this, if we make it like a regular feature of, you know, if there's updates over the next couple of months. And all of them are based around the wordplay on Coronation Street, which if people don't know, because most of our (laughs) listeners are from the US, it's a massive soap opera here in the UK that's run for about 700 years. I think that's an exact amount of years. Exact amount of time, yeah. Um, And so I had like Coronation Peak, like a peek at what's going on. <laughs> um, my other alternative was um, the word on the Coronation Street, like the word on the street, Ooh, yeah, Coronation the street. street. And also I found a deep fake site that can, um, if you type in some text, it produces uh, an audio clip of a celebrity or whoever saying those words. I don't really know how that works, but it's like, I don't know, AI and technological things I don't understand but anyway you can get King Charles to say the word on the coronation (laughs) street uh in his um accent so you know if it is a regular thing that's what we'll go for I love it um so yeah that's not related to any any of the news but I just wanted to bring that up for us to consider Anyway, thinking about Coronation Peak here (laughs) Coronation Peak yeah Uh, Coronation Peak or Coronation Peep yeah, so send us your thoughts on which one you like best um, or alternatives just to my t- two terrible ideas. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we do have a couple of bits of news on the Coronation Street. So they have officially released the emblem, which I guess is just like the logo, really, of the, the Coronation, which was designed by, I'm going to say Sir Johnny Ive. I don't know if it's Ivy or Ive. But he did a lot of the design work for Apple and like um, is a very big design person. Um, and the crown, it, it features a crown um, in that's made of the flowers of the four nations. So the thistle, rose, shamrock and daffodil. 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 I was about to say leek. That's not a flower. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say something that... I never thought I would ever say, because why would you? Because it's a weird sentence, but I really loved that emblem. <laughs> it's, really, it's really nice. It's very Charles. Very Charles. Well, and that's, I think I liked it because I think it, it's incorporating, like, he loves 
plants and the natural world and so I liked that it kind of had a bit of a Charles touch to it of having it be built out of flowers and I also thought that it's appropriately British because it has the four the flowers of the four nations but it wasn't like knocking you over the head with Britishness. Yeah I liked when they I was reading the press release and they're like it's red white and blue and I'm like the white is the background that doesn't count. That doesn't no no not really. <laughs> Um, that's a bit of a reach. Um, <laughs> and there's also, I've seen like colour variations. So there was like one that was sort of red and pink, which was an interesting colour combination. I think that's controversial, isn't it? Of wearing red and pink together, like wearing blue and navy, uh, blue and black. Anyway, um, but yeah, so they, 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 I think they've got like colour variations of it as well, which will work for different things. But the sort of main, the main one is red. Well, it's red and blue, but <laughs> the background is white. Apparently that counts. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I don't know anything about design, so I can't really put into words why I liked it as such, but I just, it looks really professional. <laughs> and I know it's professional because, like, this guy is, he's got, like, a billion patents and he made Apple and designed, you know, all of the design of the technology that we use. So, like, he is a big deal. Um, it's probably really patronising for him to hear some 30-year-old woman be like, <laughs> it's so well designed, Johnny, well done. <laughs> Um, but it, 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 it just, I don't know. I feel like if I was making something like that, I'd like stop the flowers at the wrong point, or I would make it look like you can't tell the difference between the crown and the background or like the flowers would be, wouldn't look like flowers, but I don't know. It's just really well designed. It is. Yeah. I think I, I, I mean, if, if you said to me, can you draw like a flowery coronation emblem? Mm. I would have drawn a crown and put some flowers around it. But yes. Like, the flowers are the crown and there's flowers behind them and it all kind of like interweaves it looks like these really old sort of tapestries or desks like ornate antique desks where it's like surprise and if you touch the crown it opens a secret drawer like it's really like intricate but it's intricate enough that you're like oh that's that's nice that's special I like it definitely so I mean well done to Johnny Ive I don't really know what they're going to do with this if it's going to be on I think it's going on tea towels. <laughs> tea towels, yeah. I mean, I might buy a mug, to be fair. I, I'm always like, oh, I'm not a royalist. And, but I do have like, I have a Charlotte, Princess Charlotte mug um, from when she was born. I got one of the, what's the mug lady called? Oh, um, Emma, someone. Yes, Emma Bridgewater. <laughs> <laughs> Emma Bridgewater. I've got, I was about to try and find it in my, in my bedroom. But yes, um, I've got one of those. I quite like, I do quite like it if it's a well-designed one. Like, I might not like the person, but I do like a good mug. Like a nice mug. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one thing that's happened is that they've released the emblem. I think one of the other big pieces of news was about the crown. Yes. Yes. So it was announced that they were taking Queen Mary's crown out of the Tower of London for um, alterations, which was kind of like a sneaky way of being like, Camilla will wear this crown. It was really strange. It was like the press release was like, it's been removed from the Tower of London because Camilla's going to wear it and not Camilla's going to wear this crown. It was a very, yeah. it was a really weird way that they framed it. It was like, because right up until that point, we didn't even know if Camilla was actually going to be crowned. She could have just like been there. They were like, she is, and we're going to tell you, but we're going to do it in like the sneakiest way possible. We've taken this crown out. Surprise. That's kind of what I thought was I, like, maybe I've missed something or I'd been naive or I'd made a wrong assumption, but I was up until they re they announced which crown she was going to wear. I didn't know if she was going to wear a crown at all because for years and years and years, we were told Camilla's not going to be a queen. And obviously that changed, but 
even even so, I didn't know if that would extend. To, I mean, she's being called the queen consort now, which is not really a thing, but they're doing that to kind of distance her name from the queen name. And so I thought, well, maybe they'll continue that kind of thing. And like, she'll be there, obviously, and she might have her own anointing or something, but maybe she won't have a big crown or, you know, maybe it'll be something that's done separately and privately rather than in front of a big crowd of people. So I honestly had no idea she was going to wear a crown at all. Yeah, I ca- I do like how they keep just announcing that they're in a- they're removing crowns from the because <laughs> I'm like right at the bottom of this press release they were like oh also the Edward the Confessor crown that Charles is going to wear we've put that back now that's all yeah. sorted. Thank goodness. I mean, we were all on the edge of our seat. Um, I really like the fact that it's obviously it's a repeated crown. It's it's not a brand new one, and they kept being like, "It's very sustainable. It's a sustainability decision. Like it's gonna like carbon offset the coronation to remove the crown." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so I think that's the other big thing is like, I mean, so firstly, the fact that she's going to wear a crown at all, even though they might be trying to suggest or make it seem as if, well, she was always going to wear a crown and we don't even need to announce it because it's, not, it's a given. Um, but it was not a given and they're being <laughs> sneaky. But the other big thing about about the announcement of the crown is that for the first time since the 18th century, um, the queen will be uh using a crown that somebody else has used she'll be reusing a crown basically and yeah they kind of said oh this is all about sustainability and I mean it's a smart choice for a few reasons I don't know if sustainability is necessarily (laughs) one of those um I can understand why they're trying to frame it that way and it's not like I'm not angry that they tried to frame it as sustainability it's not like they're lying to us or anything it's just that like I don't know if the, the production of one crown really makes that much of a difference. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think for cost reasons, it's sensible. Something that Charles has got to really balance is, and we've talked about this before, I'm sure, but he can't have like a cut price Primark coronation because it's supposed to be special and it's supposed to be magical. And there's, you know, nothing special magical about just going to an ordinary church service that they go to seven million times every year anyway but at the same time it's a cost of living crisis and it's an easy criticism to make if the royals are spending million or the government is spending millions and millions and millions to give a very rich man a big party with a shiny hat and you know um (laughs) it doesn't it's a balance of like you can't make it completely dull and like a budget coronation too much, but you also can't spend at the rate that you probably would have, you know, for the Queen's coronation. And so I think their approach seems to be, we'll cut back where it makes sense to cut back. And I think this is one area, like there are certain things that I think if they cut back on it, it would feel notable and it would make it feel like less important. But I actually think this is an area where it makes total sense to cut back and reuse. I actually like it more because it feels traditional, like she's paying homage to Queen Mary, who was the last person to wear it, rather than making some... I actually actually prefer that. I mean, I didn't know that they'd all been making their own sort of new crowns for the last 300 years. I just assumed there was like a queen's crown and a king's crown. (laughs) But apparently not. Um, So yeah, I thought it made a lot of sense. And I also thought it would be very... It would be very out of touch to commission a new crown but also it doesn't feel like the type of thing Charles who is very famously quite stingy with money in terms of where he is dishing out would do like I'm not saying he's like a cheapskate because he clearly has a very expensive taste in like clothes and ties and stuff he's not like 
living on the poverty line and great example for all good financial people to follow but he's not the type of person to be like I'm going to commission myself 14 portraits for my own birthday out of the public press I would have been surprised if he had been like Camilla's we're getting her a new crown and it's gonna have 54 diamonds and they're all brand new and we've just found them in a mine somewhere very eagle like I wasn't expecting that but I I yeah I was very glad that they're reusing one and I like the fact it's Queen Mary because it feels like it's removed enough away to be like a tradition rather than this is honoring Charles's favorite grandma which is what I was hearing was going to happen beforehand that's what the the um royal reporters were definitely telling us was definitely going to happen that Camilla was definitely going to wear the Queen Mother's crown so once again someone's not right no just making stuff up as they go along surprisingly perhaps after the war of the whales is and all that stuff he actually is quite good at the optics i think he does understand much more than the queen did anyway he understands the modern press age and pr and that sort of stuff much better than she did and so i think he's kind of recognizing that um not only can is this a a cost-effective thing um because it is public money but also he can spin it he can use it and it has advantages of its own and linking I think with Camilla she's obviously controversial the idea that she's queen and I think if she had a new thing made you know if I think if it was Diana and we were in a cost of living crisis people would have been absolutely fine with her having a new crown made and nobody would have said anything so it makes sense to kind of avoid splashing loads of cash on her but it also kind of ties her with the sort of lineage of queens that have gone by yeah and it's also they because um, they're, they're just like customizing it, sorry, adapting it, making small changes to it um, in the form of some of the jewels and diamonds or removing some of the arches. It's still, it's like Camilla's version of the crown, which I think works really well because, and also it's a massive crown and Camilla's got a lot of hair so she can pull it off. Like she needs a big, big crown on that day. <laughs> she needs to look fancy. Yeah. Well, that's, that's another thing is that it's being, so it's being customized um which I mean that's nice anyway because it is it makes it feel a little bit different even though it's the same basic crown um but I think a big part of why it's being customized is that they are removing the I don't know how to pronounce this Koinor the really bad diamond the bad diamond <laughs> um and they're replacing the Koinor diamond with the Cullinan diamonds and so I mean this is maybe a different discussion for a different day but basically the path that the Koinor diamond took to get to Britain is pretty controversial there may have been I think uh, it belonged to India or Pakistan they fight over that quite a lot and then at one point it kind of disappeared and then suddenly it was in Britain and nobody really knows how it got where it got and whether people were under duress and whether it was stolen and all these sorts of things not only would it inflame tensions between us and India and Pakistan if we if we used it uh, when it's potentially stolen, it would also probably cause fighting between India and Pakistan of them both being like, but it's our diamond anyway, so why are you upset? <laughs> Which, you know, if we can avoid that, great idea. And the Cullinans, I mean, diamonds as a whole are controversial. Unless they're lab grown, diamonds are, are uh, Not iffy. nice. Yeah, it's ethically, <laughs> ethically iffy. So diamonds are never from controversy especially because like the Cullen and diamonds that are replacing it are from South Africa and they came from a time when it was uh, well white rule and um 
black South African people were being oppressed and all these sorts of things. So it's still not uncontroversial, but it was acquired legally as far as we know, and there's less mystery about the origins. So it's the less controversial choice. There was, I think there's always going to be like, since she wasn't wearing the like coin or diamond, which is like, oddly, like the crown jewel of the crown jewels in oh. a very bad way. Like the next the next best one is the Cullinan, which is the biggest diamond of all time or something. I don't know much about diamonds. Um, but like there's some in the crown jewels. Like it was split into nine parts and two of them are in the actual crown jewels. So it's like they've taken the ones that went into the queen's possession and put some of her diamonds in Camilla's crown. So it's like it all ties together very nicely. Yeah, so I think they are they are aware of the criticisms that could happen, both in terms of cost and in terms of sort of the ethics of a coronation and how things are different now from how they were in 1953. I'm not a Daily Mail reading right wing Tory voter, but even I was like, well, it's got to be it's got to be special. Otherwise, what's the point in doing it? You might as well just do do it in McDonald's. It's, it doesn't they can provide you with a crown at Burger King. Um <laughs> So why not just do it there? You know, but I think that they are conscious of like they have um, lots of different people to please. And so they're making cuts, but not in everything. And so that's what I get from this whole story about the crown, really. It's, it's almost it's causing me quite a bit of stress. But it's like I'm very intrigued to see how the coronation is going to go, because it's al- it is going to be impossible to please almost anyone because you're trying to balance this incredibly historic, massive celebratory event with a cost of living crisis and then you're balancing with people who want all the tradition so they want all the peers invited and other people go well why are any of the peers invited why not invite normal people from different you know and you're never going to please because if you're pleasing the people who want to invite you know your average joe from milton Keynes coronation you're going to upset the people who want the peers there and they're also the ones that want the bigger celebration so it's going to be a really hard balance and i'm touching wood but i do think of all the kind of modern British royals I think Charles is probably the one that's got the best understanding of that balance I had a message on Tumblr um, that was kind of a bit annoyed because they'd heard that Charles was going to reuse the chairs that Westminster Abbey already has and wasn't going to order new chairs and they thought that this was a shame because it wasn't it was an opportunity to promote sort of British furniture making and textiles and he was missing it and like I understand that perspective and I can very much understand why people who are in that industry would be upset but if he doesn't spend if he if he spends money on chairs they might have to cut back on the flowers and then people who work with flowers florists will be really upset about it uh, or you know if they don't cu- if they don't cut that they'll have to cut the candles and then the people who make candles will be upset. and like you can't please everybody all the time so just I think he's thinking sensibly about what makes sense to cut and can we make something positive if we are cutting it like you know the 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 crown being reused is not just a cost-cutting measure it's a traditional thing it's 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 linking us to our past so he's making sensible cuts rather at the moment rather than sort of just reckless ones um the other announcement which actually came out the night before we do our podcast um was about the music I did not write any notes for this because firstly it came out the night before as I say and I couldn't be bothered and uh, secondly I don't really care I think the music will matter on the day but I haven't heard it so I can't make a decision about whether I liked it or not because I haven't heard it 
Yeah, I mean, I, I read one of the press releases. I was like, Andrew Lloyd Webber's to write a piece and I misread it as to fight. And I was like, that's a that's a bit of a plot twist. Andrew Lloyd Webber's going to fight someone at the coronation. Not the news. That would have been far more exciting. <laughs> I would have been here for that. But no, apparently, I don't think Andrew Lloyd Webber will be fighting someone on the coronation, which is my input into the music. I, I would support that. He could fight good Charles, maybe, and whoever wins gets to be king. Oh, no, that would be a terrible situation. I don't want Andrew Lloyd Webber as king. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's the word on the coronation street. <laughs> <laughs> I will stick with this till I die. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, in another recent update to a developing story, so to speak. Um, we have, over the past year and a bit, spoken quite a bit about um, Martha Louise of Norway, Princess Martha Louise, and her fiancé, Derek. Um, and we recently did an episode where, after it was announced that um, King Harold and the rest of the Norwegian royal family and Martha Louise and Derek had come to a decision that she wouldn't be a working royal anymore, and it was all really nice and everyone agreed and we spoke about how well they managed it and everyone was really happy with it and the most controversial thing was Sonia going Americans don't even understand monarchies which <laughs> was hilarious um but then obviously Martha Louise watched that podcast and was like mm, I think I'm gonna just put my own spin on things and she has given an interview to a Swedish yeah talk show interview show yeah. thing called Min Sanning, where she, she gave her opinion on lots of things. Grace mentioned that we talked about this a lot. If you want to go back and listen, episode 26, we talk about their relationship and why it's controversial. Episode 45, we talked about the status change within the royal family. But long story short, he's a shaman. She speaks to angels. Martha Louise had to give up all her patronages because of the fact that he's a shaman and she speaks to angels. Um, <laughs> and it was agreed that they shouldn't be talking about royals anymore. That didn't last. Within a couple of months, they were talking about the king on their social media, which they weren't supposed to do. And now Martha Louise has given this interview. And so I watched the whole thing. I did not. <laughs> I transcripts. When we were when we decided we were going to do this episode or do this in this episode, I was like, oh, I really don't want to do this. I we've talked about them so often. I don't have anything else to say. And it's kind of controversial. And I but actually when I watched it, I had lots more to say than I thought I would. Um so I think the first thing I wanted to say was that I've re I read a bit about this journalist and I think people have been selling this as like Oprah 2.0 or like going on Ellen or something like that. And as far as I know, this is a, this this the show is very serious. It's not sensationalist, really. It's not like um, just allowing somebody to say whatever they want it's much more of a serious interview. It's a bit like, you know, like Emily Maitlis and how she interviewed Andrew. Obviously it's different because Andrew's much worse than Martha Louise, but it, it was a serious interview. It was like a panorama style interview. And so when I was watching it, I really appreciated having that interviewer because she clarified, um, she followed up and like asked for examples of, you know, if Martha Louise said she'd been treated differently, she asked for specific examples. She challenged her. So like she read her quotes and I'll get to that later on, but she um, she was sort of saying, well, what, you know, this is what people have been saying. What do you say to that? And kind of it was a real challenge for her. 
And so I really actually, when I went into it, because of all the headlines I'd seen, I thought it was going to be this like sensationalist, um, you know, trashy kind of show. But actually, the interviewer was really, really good. <laughs> yeah, I remember reading about it. And it was like, it's always been like really high important Swedish people. And also like Nelson Mandela. And I was like, yeah. what? <laughs> I looked into it and I was like, oh, it makes more sense now. And I think, you know, when I did read the transcripts, it it, fe- it felt like, like you said it felt to me like the sort of the Emily Maitlis interview with Andrew where she was like mm, let's discuss that in more detail rather than you know other interviews with royals where they're very like so tell me what you think I agree one of the big talking points that she mentions early on and that has kind of dominated a lot of the headlines is she said that she thinks she is the person in Norway who re- who's received the most criticism um and a lot of people have been like have been really have very, very strongly reacted to that and those headlines and have kind of been like oh uh but what about Mesmeri or Sonia or uh what about politicians and blah 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 and I actually think and this is very strange for me because I was very critical of her in the last episode we did but she it was taken out of context because when she was challenged on that by the interviewer, again, this is the credit to the interviewer who did a great job in, in challenging that statement. Um, she said, well, essentially she's talking cumulatively. So a politician might get a lot of criticism for four or five years, but then they retire and they go about their business and they're, you know, nobody remembers who they are. Or Meta Marit was very heavily criticized at the beginning. She didn't say this, but, you know, as an example, Meta Marit was very heavily criticized at the beginning, but then has had lots of moments where people have really loved her and there's been loads of positive things about her. And so I think what she was saying was not if you look at the news on an, a, any given day, I'm the person who's getting the most criticism, or even if you look at the last six months or a year, I'm the most criticized. She was saying, I've been criticized the most consistently consistently without a break for like 25 years and no one else has really experienced that and so to be honest I think she's right yeah I think it's one of these things when as soon as she said it it was going to become a soundbite yeah and the soundbite sounds bad it sounds like wow you're out of touch you don't understand people but like she's not wrong like she is in a position where she's been a public figure from birth um she would have had you know negative attention from being early on for being a girl um and then she's always been like I will say like the black sheep of the family because she's not been like the bad one but she's been like the alternative one compared to Hakon who's always been very sort of good and straight-laced and done all the right things and I think you know there's there's a and obviously the air and the spare again, but it's that kind of that foil to if there's mm. a good person you're gonna find a foil for them even if you're going to create one, even if they do, they're not exactly like that. And that's kind of, I think, has happened to an extent with Martha Louise because, you know, her marriage to, you know, her first marriage to Ari Ben and Hakon's marriage to Meta Marit probably were kind of equally controversial in their own different ways. But over time, whereas the public sort of embraced Meta Marit and Hakon and their family, they never did the same with Martha, Louise and Ari and their family. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I I actually think that, as you say, it, it was going to be the soundbite because it's it sounds good. But thankfully, we had this good interviewer who was able to challenge and say, like, what do you mean by that? And that gave Martha Louise the opportunity to clarify and actually explain herself 
And so her statements were actually completely reasonable. And I don't, I mean, I, obviously I don't have the data about who's had the most negative articles and things, but being a royal means you're in the spotlight forever. And her spotlight has been mostly negative. And so I actually thought that was a really reasonable statement that she made when you actually dig down into <laughs> it. Um, and then kind of, I think another thing she said that got a lot of headlines was this idea that she wouldn't have had, and we kind of just touched on it a little bit there, like she wouldn't have had the same criticism if she was a man. And I think, I understand what she was saying. Uh, basically misogyny exists, which is not a controversial statement, really. <laughs> um, and you're not going to get any disagreement from either of us there, I don't think. Um but I think she expressed it maybe in a slightly clunky way because sure, maybe she wouldn't get as much criticism if she was a male, but her partner would, the female would still, there would still be the criticism. It just wouldn't, it would be on the female of the situation. Yeah, I think that's the one that almost caused, I don't say controversy because it all caused controversy, but that's the one where people were like, what about insert Sonia or Metamarit here? But I think, and that was one where, you know, they kept, the interviewer kept being like, do you mean, in your family do you mean in the world public and she's like no not in my she kept going, like no in my family everything was fine we just go through doors normally like yeah <laughs> yeah we just do normal things um and Martha Louise she I think because it was an interview and because of the way we report on interviews the the first bit gets reported and all the clarifications don't so it all of, if you if she'd rephrased it into a less clunky way and had it almost like the clarification was her initial statement it would have come across a lot better because she would have been saying like I've been treated like this because I'm a female royal and you know that wouldn't have happened if I was a man but this is still an issue whereas instead you kind of go and come across and be like if I was a man none of this would have happened and they'd be like what what do you want about it's really interesting to me that those are the big headlines that have come out of this because those sound really like self-pitying and kind of woe is me, uh, isn't my life so hard? But I actually, something that really came out of the interview for me is that it wasn't really very self-pitying, actually, when I went, when I was watching it. Maybe it's different if you're reading it, I don't know. But she, like, there was a bit where she talked about how she is highly sensitive. And essentially what her interpretation of that is like the idea, the thing that you hear online of like somebody being an empath which is just, <laughs> but I think, so she brought that up and she talked about that for a while. Um, but what she was essentially saying, if you get past all the woo-woo nonsense, was <laughs> that part of the reason why criticism is so hard is because she is a sensitive person. And so the criticism that other people might get might not hit them as, as, more, as difficult, uh, as, um, as strongly, because they're not may maybe as sensitive. And I think this is the first time I've actually heard Martha Louise say, a, essentially part of the difficulty is in her um it's yeah. not just that she's being criticized and isn't that horrible and mean she recognized in a very sort of self-aware way that part of the reason why this stuff bothers her is because of her nature and her disposition and it wouldn't necessarily bother other people in the same way and I've never ever heard her acknowledge that it's not all someone else's fault in that way. And I think she did the same with Jurex. Like she talked about the culture shock and um, the fact that he's from the US and the culture is really different. And I think she did that in a good way because she wasn't like attacking either culture. She, she was just saying they're different. Um, 
but she was saying like you know part of the reason why he's found it so difficult is because it's a culture shock so it was the first yeah it wasn't self-pitying to me it was the first time that I've ever actually seen her acknowledge that part of the controversy is because her of her and Jurek and and something that is within them rather than just external that makes sense definitely I think when I read the kind of when it first sort of aired and I sort of saw the initial headlines or sort of social media posts about it and it it almost sounded like she'd been sat there going like I hate being a royal I would be the best royal of all time but I hate it and everyone's horrible and it's not my fault that no one lets me be a royal because I'm actually brilliant and then when you look at what she said she kind of first of all she didn't say that at all but she was just kind of talking about how like she is perfectly happy like within her family she is fine with her role she doesn't want to be the heir um she does wish she could do some more for Norway but like and there are issues and she sort of laid out those issues in varying degrees of successful ways um and she addressed some of the criticism against her again some of it more successfully than others but it was all very much like but I'm happy with who I am and of my life and I accept this as who I am and I definitely think that um if it wasn't necessarily coming so close to um Harry's recent book and the his interviews I don't think the press would have taken the same angle when they publicized it I think it would be more like heartfelt interview with Martha Louise rather than another spare (laughs) talking about this which was the kind of general consensus from the initial uh viewing absolutely I mean I that's the big thing for me I so I haven't watched most of Harry's interviews. I've never watched the Oprah interview the whole way through. I have not read any of the book. I Everything I know about his work since he's left the royal family has been against my will. Um, <laughs> but th- something that was, I think is very different that people don't seem to be willing to talk about a lot is Martha Louise loves her family. And she took every opportunity she could to make it clear that she loves her family. So like there was one part where she said that Hakon is going to be a fantastic king and she's kind of glad she's not the heir because he's going to do an amazing job. And the bit that really stood out to me was when she was asked about kind of, are you sad that you're not a working royal and you can't represent uh, Norway anymore? And she, she said like, yes, you know, obviously I care about these charities. I care about my country. I wish I could do more. But then she said that the fact of the matter is she isn't a working royal and her patronages now get a different member of the family to represent them. And ultimately, that's a good thing. And I loved that because I think a lot of the a lot of what's missing in some of these conversations, it's all about like Harry and Meghan versus the royals or Martha Louise and Jurek versus the versus the royals and the people get missed out in the conversation. And so I really love that Martha Louise was ultimately, she cares about her charities. And so what matters to her is that they get somebody who represents them and they get the spotlight from having a royal patron. Not her, she doesn't, it doesn't have to be her. It can be somebody else within the family as long as the charities get the attention. You know, it was really clear reading it, the whole interview that Martha Louise, like you said, loves her family and also loves her sort of her job and her passion of being like she loved being a working royal but also like you said she doesn't put herself above the job which I think fans of royals tend to do I'd say people who royal watch be like oh but it's so unfair that this one person wasn't at this event it's like they shouldn't be there it's nothing to do with them it's not about them it's about the event that's happening 
Yeah, definitely. And I think that's the thing that people seem to be, and we know why, but they seem to be overlooking it because they're trying to make it into this repeat drama of Harry and Meghan. And there are some similarities, you know, it's a mixed race or the interracial couple. Um, one of them is American. He's very into kind of wellness nonsense. Um, he is a celebrity in his own right. He's friends with lots of celebrities. So there are similarities. And so I can understand that. But when you actually look at it, the family in Norway is very functional and healthy and they all love each other very much which is not the case in Britain it's very dysfunctional <laughs> people are deliberately overlooking things like that because it's not as interesting a story um but actually when you look at those you realize that this is not the same situation yeah and there was also a real like love of Norway there was a part where they were like oh are you are you going to move to the US and I know we've spoken before like does she live in the US probably and she was like not until the kids leave school like this is their home and one day I might do but I live in Norway and it was very clear like this is my home yeah and I thought you know that's the type of thing that in if they were doing a different narrative would have been the headline story like you know princesses <laughs> Norway is their home and always will be like that's a great headline but it's not the kind of self-pitying narrative they were trying to promote so it's really it all the sound bites were there to do a kind of pro Martha Louise pro Norway story but they went the other way instead I think what's so what's really interesting, I would urge anybody who can to watch it, even if you just watch it from like half an hour onwards, because the interview is about an hour long. And the first 40 minutes, she comes across as a bit kooky, a bit odd, um, but ultimately a really nice person. And I've got some overall impressions that I'll talk about later, which expand on that a bit more. But she doesn't she just she seems really nice. And then at about 40 minutes, things change. And it's really interesting. Um, and the reason they change is because Jarek is mentioned for the first time. And the interviewer starts off by mentioning these medallions that Jarek made during, co during the pandemic. And he sold to people as kind of being a cure for, the, for COVID. And she instantly becomes incredibly hostile. Before she'd been like, oh no, you don't need to use formal language with me. And oh, laugh, laugh, laugh. And aren't we friends? And then, but she immediately shuts down any any conversation she says she's not going to talk about it at all um and then when she's pressed a little bit she says well it was taken out of context which by the way I went back and looked and it wasn't Jarek said <laughs> that he had COVID he went to a hospital and he left the hospital because all hospitals do is pump you full of chemicals he went home rubbed his medallion that's not a euphemism um <laughs> rubbed his medallion and it cured him of COVID it was not taken out of context at all um but she immediately just is like, no, I'm not going to talk about it. And then it go the, the interviewer, bless her heart, she keeps going and she sort of says, well, I'm going to confront, I'm going to tell you exactly what he wrote in his book. I'm going to read you an exact quote of when he says that children who have cancer want, want to have cancer, basically, it's their own fault. Um, and she reads word for word what is in the book. And Martha Louise is obviously a little bit stumped because this is it, it wasn't just like the medallion thing was just sort of like oh he said this and she went no it was taken out of context this was his words and she went oh well I don't answer for him and you know just because we're together doesn't mean that I agree with everything that he says I don't have to answer for him and it's just so interesting to see how she immediately shifts and becomes really hostile and doesn't engage at all the second Jarek is mentioned after 40 minutes of being really friendly and open and self-aware it's so fascinating is is when I was writing my uh, writing my notes and I was making notes on the bits where sh I was like hmm I don't know if I like this they rule in the kind of phone call the direct section it was really because I didn't I didn't obviously I haven't seen it 
I don't know what she was looking like, but I think even in, like I, we said that she was very sort of, she spoke about her kind of passionate love she has for her family and for Norway and for her job. And it almost like, it becomes almost, it felt almost scripted. Like she had her set answers for these questions and she gave those answers and she wasn't elaborating. She wasn't, she didn't paint direct in this, she wasn't like, oh, he's a wonderful brilliant man and I and he cares so much like he she could have really elaborated on him as a person and sort of made him sound like this brilliant person and she didn't even do that she just was like I don't know I can't answer that I don't speak for him everyone loves me I don't know what's going on (laughs) it was so strange and I think it's an interesting thing of like how do you how much do you hold somebody responsible for the things that their partner does his stuff is just particularly dangerous like Martha Louise thinking that she can talk to angels doesn't really hurt anybody but selling somebody encouraging somebody not to go to a hospital and to reject modern medicine in favor of <clears throat> spending huge amounts of money on a medallion that they only they sell um that's dangerous blaming children for the cancer that they have and saying that if they don't get better it's because they didn't essentially they didn't spend enough money with him but you know he, they didn't want to um that's dangerous and so I think Martha Louise has not done these things I don't hold her responsible for what he says but I do think that it says something about who you are as a person if you can look at that level of cruelty and exploitation and think oh yeah I want to spend my life with that like that's what I judge I don't judge her for what he says but I judge her for the fact that she won't engage with the fact that he says those things because that does say something about who she is yeah, I think I, you know, if I don't want to compare him to the men of the British royal family, but if I do, like, if we take Andrew out of the equation for a minute, like, they're all idiots, quite frankly, the men of the British <laughs> royal family, and they all say stupid things, and they've all done stupid things, and they've made mistakes that, if it was, you know, a friend of mine, I would have been like, that's it, we're done, we're not friends anymore, because you've made it enough, you've made too many mistakes. Except the Duke of Gloucester, who just talks about architecture and is normal. He just lives his best life. Yeah. <laughs> but, like... I can see why they are all, you know, still happily married because there is, you know, they're they're stupid things, but for most of them, there's not that malice behind them. It's, you know, it's a rich white person saying something because they don't understand or they've done something because they don't understand because they've not sort of been exposed to the world. Whereas the, if I, you know, if I bring Andrew back into the equation, the reason why I can never take Sarah Ferguson seriously as the funny sideshow character is because she still willingly hang, you know, says how much she loves Andrew to this day. And I can't, I'm like, well, even if you, you know, that initial marriage, we remove that, the Sarah Ferguson of 2023 is still saying how much she loves Andrew. And we know between now and then he's been friends with a very bad person. So that's something where I draw the line and I can't view her as this funny person that we see on the sidelines and I think that's the thing with Martha Louise because I've always liked Martha Louise as kind of like a weird aunt yeah (laughs) weird aunt energy definitely (laughs) there's a point where I'm like if you are happy for him to say these things and to promote them with your joint tour you know like Maybe I don't think, maybe we wouldn't get on. Maybe I wouldn't like you in person. She, I think she's just being a bit naive by thinking that she she shouldn't have to answer for his stuff. You know, she didn't come out and go like, the presser to blame for how people view me. But she was like, I've been treated differently because of these reasons. And it is in the public, not in private. And 
one of the people who's kind of coming sort of commandeering that is the press and the way they've spoken about me and the way I've been presented to people and which and you kind of come out that being like actually no you're right a lot of the things we know about Martin Reese have come from the press's angles on her and then she comes in and goes like well the press have lied about Jarek he's never done anything wrong in his entire life and it's like well we know he has so now everything you've previously said suddenly doesn't make any sense and you're like well if she's not if she's clearly not being honest here then maybe the rest of it wasn't right either I think so I have some overall impressions which I will share now uh <laughs> when I was going even when she was talking about all of her sort of nonsense I came away from it thinking what I initially what I thought about Martha Louise this in the whole time I've known she's existed which is that she's a weirdo but she's a really <laughs> nice person and it was really interesting because she there were a couple of moments where she came across as way funnier than I thought she would be um like there was one point where she joked about marrying commoners royals marrying commoners and how she thought it was probably a good idea because they've all married their cousins for so long that it's probably not very good for their health um and like that was really funny and then she said when she first met Jarek um he said to her that they were meant to meet before they were even born and she responded to that by essentially rolling her eyes and thinking oh gosh she's one of these LA guys and that's exactly the reaction <laughs> I would have had and I, I wouldn't have expected that I thought she would have loved that so there were moments where I was like actually you're a bit odd and a bit kooky but you're you're funny and you're nice and you're just you just interpret things in a different way and that's okay that's fine and I also I would say you know a lot of the things that came out that were negative were not as negative as as when you were watching it or reading through it they're not actually as bad as everybody thought they just have become soundbite is what happens but the cloud that hangs over the whole thing is that the way that she changes when Jarek is mentioned and how she immediately shuts down and doesn't engage and won't seem to it, it's kind of protective to the point of delusional and it's it honestly was quite chilling to me and so Every, I, my overall impression is that I was left feeling she's a really lovely person but that is an area that she still needs to work on because she's so self-aware about everything else but that is one area that she just does not seem to be willing to engage in anybody else's perspective other than her own yeah I think there was one bit sort of fairly near the end of the interview where she was like um you know, when I'm in when I'm in a supermarket, people come up and whisper like, "I'm just like you," and yeah. then they run away <laughs> and leave the supermarket. And first of all, it's the funniest image I've ever had in my life, and I do yeah. like to think about it. I'm like, just imagine that. Um, but also, it 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 kind of like like you said, like the first sort of chunk of the interview, I was like, "Oh, positive, positive, positive," and then it's kind of went downhill, and that just was felt like such a weird thing to include because everything that I was spent the first sort of half of the interview defending her against so my head being like oh she's quite you know grounded that one line was just bizarre and it it was all the it was the press's Martha Louise speaking the one that is very self-obsessed and you know is the persecuted princess and the people of Norway can't stand up for her against the press so they have to whisper it to her in the Swedish version of Asda no the Norwegian version of Asda and I was just it it felt like I just it like, felt like the two people it felt like there's the real Martha Louise that we saw at the beginning. And then there's this one that's almost like been created by the press and by the reaction to her relationship with Drek and all of this. And she can switch between them very, very easily. Mm. And it was kind of unnerving to see. Yeah, yeah I think you're definitely right. It, it felt like an interview of two different people. 
I'm I'm interested to see how it develops you know once they get married and settle down with each other like is that that other part the sort of more I don't know self-pitying um self-absorbed hostile part of her going to take over more and more which would be a shame because the bulk of it she seems like a really fun person who you could actually have a nice time with even if you disagree with everything she thinks so our last topic of today is the tour that was recently finished from crown princess victoria and prince daniel of sweden they went to australia and new zealand for about a week and we're going to sort of go day by day and talk about some highlights and um some interesting things that happened or not <laughs> so day one they started off in canberra in australia uh they i'll just rattle through what they did and then we can pick out some things that were interesting um so they started off going to the embassy where they met with embassy staff uh then they had a welcome ceremony at the national museum that was kind of had a uh, indigenous community there um doing the welcome ceremony then they went to namaji Nagi, I don't know, National Park, um, where they talked about the impact of the 2020 well, um, fires. Um, then they ended the day with a dinner at the governor's residence. So busy day. Busy day. <laughs> yeah, I think um, so. I just picked out a few things that I thought were interesting. I think it was a good day to start off with. And what I really liked, and this is something that comes out in a few of the other days, is they and, and also before the tour as well. Um, is the real focus on kind of indigenous people. So at the welcome ceremony, they had this really cool smoke. It's called like a smoking ceremony. Um, where they like burn some leaves and there's smoke everywhere. And I don't really know the symbolism or significance of it, but it was really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and like before they left, Victoria went to um, a museum in Sweden and viewed their collection of kind of indigenous artwork. All, to all tours that I know of that go to Australia and New Zealand will do like something related to Indigenous people. But it was a real focus for, throughout this. And I think it's kicked it off really well that the first, their like official welcome was from Indigenous people. It kind of set the tone for the rest of the tour, which I thought was really smart and really nice. Yeah. And I also thought Victoria's sort of speech she did mm -hmm. when she was welcomed was one of the, not just a really good Victoria speech, but it was one of the better speeches sort of about and towards indigenous people from royals because they they can sometimes sort of sort of veer into hello and well thank you for letting us be here and we're also letting you be here in your own land but it wasn't like that it was a very sort of it it felt it did a really good job of sort of balancing like the political part of you know the indigenous people of Australia and their sort of own battles with it being like thank you for welcoming us and it being a very polite diplomatic message which I thought was just was a really good speech I really liked speech yeah yeah um and like she did that thing that I think I think it's quite standard now but even just a few years ago it probably wasn't of sort of when she introduces the speech saying sort of there's that line that they use about sort of the land belonging to indigenous people and thanking them for uh, allowing people to be on the land and uh, kind of paying respect to the elk. I can't remember. It was much more eloquent than what I'm saying, but it was. <laughs> it's like a it's like a stock thing that they put in a lot of like TV shows and stuff that are produced in Australia. They'll put a message as well, and so I think even just a few years ago, that wasn't really something that you would have heard very often in in speeches in Australia from royals. 
yeah definitely not it would have been more like a oh we've got a, one indigenous event on like thursday and then we might mention something but that's it yeah yeah and that's the that's the indigenous bit and then we'll do the rest of the bit and it separates it out more and kind of makes it almost tokenistic sometimes um so i think it was good that they kind of kicked off and, and set their intentions from the beginning it, another thing that it kind of kicked off was that they were in very cute form throughout this whole tour <laughs> there was a lot of really cute moments so like there was one gift set that i made of you know it was just a little thing but they were in a truck because they always put royal well victoria in particular i have so many photographs of victoria sitting in the front seat of a truck uh, like a like a lorry <laughs> or whatever they love to put her in lorries um and uh she was in the front seat of a truck and like daniel was taking photographs of her with his own camera to show to the kids when they got back home and he said like you know um hello driver or something and she was like oh no that's the other side of the car because we drive on the other side of the road um <laughs> uh, and you know it was very it was very sweet and like yeah they talked a lot about how excited the kids would be and how um you know everything they got to see the kids were so excited and they wanted to take the kids back to australia and all these sorts. so it was like there was a lot of really and this happens again throughout the tour but it kind of kicked it off on the first day really well of like oh they're in a really good mood they're really happy to be here um and they genuinely seemed like excited about the tour i like i like the part where they were sort of in the national park and they were like yeah so and oscar literally only want to care about the koalas and kangaroos like that's all they want to know about <laughs> and i was like honest and i like it because that is all children would want i mean that's mostly what i was interested in as well like i think you can't especially if you're a royal and you're visiting and you kind of have to encompass the main cultural elements of a, of a thing you have to go and see koala bears if you go to australia like if, if they'd got done a tour of australia and had not seen any koala bears i would have been extremely disappointed <laughs> yes yeah, like you just it's one of the things you have to do it you yeah. have to see the koalas <laughs> yeah and so they gave that to us on day one they were like well get that out of the way uh we'll do the koala bear moment and yeah they they ref she referenced that in her speech about kind of how excited the kids were to see koala bears and um how to them it was all very exotic and exciting and I, yeah it was it you know set it off the first day i thought was really good set it off and sort of laid the groundwork for a lot of things that i liked about the tour yeah it had a really good balance of like your picture perfect moments of them looking at koalas and also of like we're actually here to talk about the environment and indigenous rights like we casually just throw that in there as well so on day two they stayed in canberra for the first part and they went to the national Ar arboretum is that how you say that word that's how i say that word i don't know if that's how it should be said well if both of us say it no one else is here rude we not gonna chip in so um arboretum uh where victoria planted a tree uh, then they uh, went to the National University of Australia, where they had a meeting about climate and, and the climate and energy security and kind of moved to net zero and all that stuff. Then they had some bilateral meetings with members of uh, with Australian ministers, members of the government. Um, and then finally, they traveled to Sydney, uh, which is where they would spend the next day um, for a reception at Government House. This one was had less of the sort of showy crowd pleaser moments because it was a lot of like a seminar or a closed door meeting with some ministers but that's probably the important part it was the part that was about you know the whole point of this tour and they were very clear from the beginning when was to sort of improve trade between Australia and Sweden which is I mean essentially the improving trade is the point of every visit that royals do um but we always see the sort of splashy public stuff because that's what the royals tend to do but I think 
for the actual people who are involved, the important part is those sit down bilateral meetings that are very boring to the rest of us and they don't even show us most of what they talk about. But it's kind of the what, what they're actually supposed to be going there to do. Yeah, I think it was it's weird. I think the European royals do more of the like important stuff. And by European royals, I don't include the British. They don't count in this. <laughs> the, the proper European royals, they do all the like the boring but really important stuff as sort of as well as the showy stuff, which is probably you know a more effective use of their time. But it does mean that my notes for today just went tree planting, boring stuff, reception. So <laughs> I was just I skip over all the important stuff and was like, but they planted a tree and it was very cute, and that's the bit I liked. That was that. That was the highlight, really, for me. I said that as well. Was highlight was the tree planting um, because again we got some good video footage of it, and um, I don't know who was in charge of that setup, but apparently the hole was massive um, <laughs> <laughs> that they had to bury this little tree in, and so Victoria was there for like several minutes shoveling stuff into this hole to try and plant this tree and like she had to stop for a minute and uh Daniel had to take over and he sort of said this thing about how she was very strong and she was like yeah yeah I'll go shall I come back tomorrow kind of you know to do more of what you know it was just it took ages it was just I don't know I think um of I th- uh, most royals I think would be okay but I think there there are a few where like maybe the older was like Carl Gustav or Charles and like or even the queen like it would probably be in a funny way, but they would get annoyed um, by something like that. It would, they would find that irritating and they'd probably make some sort of sarcastic comment about it and how long it's taking. Um, whereas Victoria, it's just like nothing can phase her. She turns up, she seems to turn everything into a positive experience. And so even though she was standing there for ages, and it was getting a bit awkward that she was taking so long to plant this tree. It like it became a joke between everybody and I don't know. I think it's obviously it's just a tree planting, really. Royals do that all the time. But it it says something about her character that like she was just excited to be there. She was just excited to plant a tree. And most people would not be that excited about planting a tree and not be able to turn it into such a positive thing. Yeah. And I also think like like tree planting is very important for everything. And it's a very traditional royal thing. But it's also incredibly boring most oh, of yeah. the time because yeah. you're watching someone be like, some soil, yay. And then they give the spade to someone else. Unless, you know, you're special. Um, but I I think like it it was it was it was a highlight because it she made it feel like a proper thing. And now when someone goes to the National Arboretum of Australia and sees the tree, they'll be like, Oh, remember that tree that Crown Prince Victoria planted and it was this whole thing? Rather than being like, Who pl- the Queen planted that? Oh, interesting. Like it's it's not interesting, but this is now this is a special tree now. I like it. Big fan of yeah. this tree big fan we're huge it's it was the star of the show was this tree um yeah made the second day more interesting because otherwise it would have just been a lot of them sitting in a room um like we didn't get to go to the seminar I'm sure it was very interesting I didn't get to go um I wasn't sitting in the room with the bilateral meetings and I have no idea what they actually spoke about but I do know they planted a tree and it was great (laughs) they planted the tree (laughs) um day three day three more trees (laughs) um yeah there were um so they started off with uh going to the sweden australia sustainable mining summit which sounds like a blast um (laughs) then they did the tour of the sydney opera house um and then they visited the botanic gardens uh saint vincent's hospital which is kind of a cancer care specialist uh they met with the australian 
women's national football team ahead of the World Cup, which is taking place later this year. Um, and then they attended an evening reception, which is for Swedish people who are in Australia. Yeah, they did a, a whole range of like boring stuff, showy stuff, yeah. trees, which I'm now a big fan of. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> Sporting stuff. <laughs> like, they did that, like, sort of, they ran the full sort of gamut of royalty. Yeah, it's like, what do, what do royals generally talk about on tours? It's like the environment, um, they go and visit a site of cultural importance, sports, healthcare. I mean, they hit all of the marks. Um, <laughs> this had like, so, you know, I mentioned the koala bears. I think the other thing that people expect is that when you go to Australia, you go to the Sydney Opera House. And um, if you don't do that, people are like, oh, but they didn't go to the Opera House. That's like the big thing in Sydney. Were they even there? Were they even in Sydney? Yeah. I don't know if this necessarily came across as strongly as it could have, but like tiles on the Opera House or maybe the roof of the Opera House or something are from a Swedish company. On the floor. Yes. The floor tiles. Yes. Are from a <laughs> I mean, it was a fun fact that I've learned now. <laughs> yes. But like, I think that that didn't come through necessarily as strongly as it could have that could have a bit more could have been made of that i know it's not that interesting because it's floor tiles really but it is about swedish industry and kind of there is that link there that they could have maybe done more with yeah i do they did that quite a bit like throughout the tour but i'd only ever see it on like sweden in new zealand's twitter account which i don't even know if that's a real thing but like they'd be like oh this is really relevant because of this one sort of link we've got and i'd be like oh that's really interesting and I'm not, I don't necessarily think like the Swedes didn't do a good job of promoting it, but it's one of those things where you just, you just shove it in the press release and then it really boosts it. Where you go like, get Victoria to do a speech, which is like, I really love this opera house, particularly the tiles, wink. Like, it's great. And she can get away with saying stuff like that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> with a, with a nice smile and a wink. And yeah, there were certain, it was interesting because there were certain parts of the tour where they did that really well I thought and they kind of put that little oh Swedish link in one time when they did it well was the visit to the botanic garden so one of the things that they did was they went to see a garden that was um in honor of the Swedish botanist Daniel Solander you know that was a little thing that like it wasn't necessarily that important to to me as a viewer but it was a nice like oh Sweden in Australia moment and they did that for that they they highlighted that um but they didn't highlight it for the opera house which was just an interesting thing i really like the part in the botan i think i've just got a thing for botanic gardens i went to the eden project once and it was the worst experience of my entire life i don't know where <laughs> this love of botanic gardens has come from i really do like it good why was it so gardens. bad i think it was just really hot because they're like mm. massive greenhouses yeah and we were on our way i think we must be going on our way to a caravan somewhere and we'd stopped off on like on the journey to go and visit the Eden Project and it felt like going to a garden centre but like 50,000 degrees hotter and there were so many people and I just hated it I was like I'm never seeing another plant ever again and then when I went to the um the one in Glasgow the Botanic Gardens in Glasgow and I absolutely loved it I was like this is who I am now a plant person (laughs) (laughs) yeah I just think I just always like it because a the picture's always good when Russell stood in their flowers and I just think it's like it's one of these things where it's such it feels like such a like a mum thing to do to go and look at some plants on the weekend and everyone else is there like uh look at plants definitely and there was some nice parts of it of like they went to view a garden that was uh designed in honor of world pride which I thought was a nice touch because again they could have just gone to the garden and walked around and that would have been fine but 
it made it um it linked it to something that victoria in particular is very passionate about like she's been very involved we've talked about this in our lgbtq plus episodes about kind of victoria's one of the people who is most supportive of the lgbtq plus community um sort of publicly as a royal and so um you know it was just a garden at the end of the day but it was a nice sort of like link to things that you know and uh, that's a credit probably to the Australians who designed the itinerary that like they thought oh well Victoria is interested in this area and the garden's got a garden that's about this area so she can go and look at it and that's a nice little <laughs> link up and I also like the fact that they they it's a huge one the botanic the Australian Sydney botanic gardens they're huge and they were like oh do you want to go in like a golf cart because she was wearing as all royal women do like six inch hills and she's like no it's fine I could not walk that in trainers I would like, no. I've got blisters oh my goodness no um I mean that's she's much hardier and fitter than I am so she, she probably was fine but I would have been like breaking a sweat just and this is why I couldn't be a royal actually is because I would just sweat too much because I'm not fit enough to do all the walking that they do I always remember when Will and Kate went to Bhutan and they went up to the Tiger's Nest Monastery and they were like, oh, no, it's okay, we don't need any water. Yeah. I was like, no, you're going to die. <laughs> Kate didn't have a drop of sweat on her. I do not understand that. No. She was in jeans. I don't, I don't understand that. And then I also, I, even though I'm not an, a sporting person, I wouldn't have had any idea that the Women's World Cup was happening this year because I, I have no idea when football things happen. But I did like that they <laughs> they did an engagement with that because firstly, we talked again in a previous episode about how woeful the um, international royal response was to women's football compared to the men's World Cup. And so I like that they kind of were, before it's even happened, they were like, oh no, we love women's football. Women's football is great. Um, and there was a funny moment there as well where Daniel said, um, oh, Victoria is really, my, you know, Crown Princess Victoria is really good at, at football. And she was like, you are a liar. <laughs> um, <laughs> And um, the, they sort of were like, oh, what position do you play? And she was like, I don't play any position. I just am trying to survive our six-year-old son, which is Prince Oscar, who we've seen play football at various things, uh, like Victoria Dagg, and he's always off with a little football. And I just, I don't know, those little personal moments are the things that we often remember from tours is like those little personal anecdotes of kind of, um, you know, we know Oscar likes football, but I can now conjure up in my head an image of Victoria playing football with Oscar. Yeah, it was it was really sweet. And I think it was one of the ones where they managed to tie it in back to Sweden because the coach of the Australian women's football team is Swedish. So there was like, it wasn't just like, we like football. It was like, we like football and Sweden. Yeah, I think, so that was the kind of the end of the Australian branch of the tour. But one thing I wanted to say that's kind of the overarching theme is I saw a couple of things from the Australian press and um journalists and things photographers and they were saying about how well basically they loved Victoria and Daniel I have never seen them speak <laughs> so positive about anybody before and I think it's because not to be rude about a royal family that this is not about but like the British royals <laughs> behave in a certain way and that's there's nothing necessarily wrong with it but they are more closed off they're there for a, a, their job and um they'll be personable and friendly to people who they meet and shake hands with but they're not there to talk to the press necessarily Whereas in the, in Scandinavia, it's they do these doorstop interviews where they just like will stop and chat. And so one of the journalists was saying like she spoke to Victoria, she had interviews with Victoria essentially like three times in one day, which she has never <laughs> ever seen on a royal tour before. My sort of overarching view was very positive for them and also very negative for the Brits for some reason. Yeah. Only because 
while they were there, I was thinking about how the fact that it is the head of state is the British royal family. Anne was also in, she was also down under at the same time for an unrelated visit. And all I could think was that if it had been to, I don't know, if they'd gone to, the British royals had gone to Greenland and Crown Princess Mary happened to be there, like they would have interacted because, and it, I know like Anne's visit wasn't like an official tour. It's more of like a working visit. So it was a bit different, but it felt, it just felt really weird to me. And I didn't necessarily think they should interact, but that the the representative of the head of state of that country didn't visit or have any sort of crossover with the visiting royals who represent another head of state of another country when they're in the same place that the neither of them normally are in. Like, it just seemed absolutely bizarre to me. And I wasn't saying like, oh, Anne should have scheduled her working visit that was there for something, I don't know around Victoria and Daniel's tour which was a completely separate thing but since they were all there at the same time they could have done I don't know that Australian women's football team and could have popped up you know it wouldn't have been hard to do one thing where they all sort of integrated I think I'm just I'm still running off the back of this unnatural anger about William not going to Constantine's funeral and now anytime the British royal or like there isn't this kind of royal overlap I'm like oh but where was your William and his passionate love for his godfather that we saw together like three times like <laughs> i'm gonna bring this frustration to every single royal event going forward because i just <laughs> that's just the weirdest thing that ever happened i think you're totally right i think like it's not i don't really care if, if victoria and Anne meet i like Anne. i like i love victoria I, it would be nice but i don't really care and that was my view for william and the funeral um like you know, can I understand why the family would be upset? Absolutely. But as a private citizen and as a private funeral, I really don't think that it's any of my business if he goes or not. Um, and the outrage that there was about that was always like, oh, well, you know, they should be doing their job more and working more with other royal families and meet. And like, but that was a private event. This is a this is an official event that they were doing. And there was no effort to kind of meet up. And so for me, I don't care. But it is hypocritical to be like, William is a terrible person and I'm going to be really angry with him for not going to this funeral that was a private event that's got nothing to do with me of just a random guy. Um, but I'm not going to be upset when Anne is on an official engagement and doesn't go and meet with the representatives of another country when she could very easily. Like, yeah, it's it's not about being angry that they didn't meet up. It's about the fact that why is no one else angry when they were so angry about it when it was William? I mean, we know, but why? <laughs> yeah, I know why, <laughs> I'm going to bring it up all the time. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a very good point. Very good point. Day four, they were in New Zealand. They were in Wellington. They started off with the visit to the National Museum Te Papa. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's what I'm going with. Then they went to Parliament for a meeting with the New Zealand European Friendship Association. Then there was a bilateral meeting in the evening with representatives of the New Zealand, I was about to, uh, well, yeah, New Zealand government. I was about to say uh, Netherlands, that's not right at all. But New Zealand <laughs> government. I felt like maybe it was the structure of this first day, the fact that so much, you know, in Australia, they did the, they did have the closed door meetings, but they also had like the welcome ceremony and they had um, the kind of koala bears and all of that sort of fluffy stuff on the first day as well. But I felt like it was just a bit less exciting. And, but I, I think that it felt like there was maybe less press attention, like people were less interested. And just having that first day be so much that was closed off or that was just like 
a meeting between two people and no like good photo opportunities. I don't know whether it was because New Zealand was going through a storm, a really bad storm, um, and whether that impacted the availability of press on the ground that they were all covering this big storm and not the visit of two royals, or whether maybe, I mean, nothing was taken out of the agenda, so the itinerary was the same, but I, I don't know. I just instantly, once they left Australia and went to New Zealand, it just felt like the press, the royals themselves and on their website, kind of everything lost steam a little bit. I couldn't I found it really hard to find information about everything they did in New Zealand which I blamed on the store I was like well there was a storm I give them that but then it was when I sort of I look back and was like but the agenda didn't if it, the agenda had changed and they'd be like oh they couldn't do these three things I'd be like well fair enough clearly there's been but everything that they did they were obviously planning to do and royal reporters and you know public affair reporters and celebrity reporters are different than major storm reporters so like surely there were some who weren't covering the storm and it just it felt almost like the tour was almost like split into two halves and you had this like really sort of like sunny Australian half and then you had the New Zealand part and it's not it's nothing against New Zealand it's not their fault they were having a massive storm but even sort of the the ordering of the sort of engagements yeah. like you said like the all the closed door stuff was on their first day there it just didn't it didn't even feel like a very Swedish tour. Like Swedish tours are always planned really well, but it just didn't seem to flow the same way that a good good Swedish tour does. Some of the stuff that was on the second day should have really been on that first day because it's not a length thing. You know, sometimes when, I, well, we didn't really talk about this because it happened during our break mostly, but um, the Dutch royals were in the Caribbean and they seemed to be there for about seven weeks. And it was a really, really great tour. So many photo opportunities, so many videos, um, so vibrant and colorful and exciting and fun. But I lost interest because it was just too long. And um, I think that's what happens if you have a tour that's over about maximum kind of 10 days is really, I think a week is ideal, but 10 days is, is you know, if, if it's really fantastic. Um, but it was re just really, really long. This was the fourth day. Like you can't even say that it was because people had gotten tired. It just felt like, the people involved cared less, which was which is weird because yeah, New Zealand is lovely, seems lovely. So day five, they started off with a traditional Maori welcome. Uh, then they had a meeting again about the Women's World Cup, but it was more for sort of young people. There was a lot of young people there who were involved in football. Then they had a lunch at the Governor General's residence. There was then some sort of seminar thing about electrification in the aviation industry, but I actually don't even know if that happened. Um, and then they went to Zealandia Eco Sanctuary. And then finally, a dinner with the mayor of Wellington. I think some of these things should have been on the first day, like the Maori welcome and the Zealandia Eco Sanctuary in particular should have been on the first day because they didn't move anywhere. They were still in Wellington. To have them on the second day was it just, it was a bit, I mean, firstly, doing a welcome when somebody's on the second day <laughs> is a bit weird. Um, but it just, you know, there were parts of it that I liked, like the indigenous culture being, um, really at the core of things again and they did give us a bit of the money shot of you know when you go to like when you go to Australia you have to look at koala bears and Sydney Opera House and when you go to New Zealand you have to do the the hongi the the nose greeting thing where they rub noses I did like some of it and they did give us some good moments but it just felt like some of that should have been on day one yeah I think especially the sort of Maori welcome I think because they were welcomed by you know the indigenous people of 
Australia and of Canberra on the first day in Australia and it really kind of set the scene for the Australian tour going forward it was kind of it felt more like an afterthought in New Zealand and I'm sure it wasn't I'm sure that was maybe just the only day they could all fit it in um to do the Maori welcome but after sort of starting it with that in Australia and then it being like oh yeah we'll do a welcome but it's going to be on day two and also you're going home tomorrow if it, it had a different kind of sort of vibe to it it didn't feel as like um also like proactive it felt more like oh no we forgot to do something in Australia with Indigenous people quick in New Zealand with Austri- Indigenous people get me a Maori welcome done like it yeah. felt almost like they'd forgotten it and they had to fit it in yeah definitely and I don't think that they did but it does give that vibe of like it being an afterthought because it isn't really a welcome ceremony if you've already been on somebody's land for 24 hours you know it's it, and you're only there for three days even with the world cup thing like well I don't actually know I think this is the thing I don't know if they met members of the team I saw them with a bunch of young people and I saw them with um a giant chicken but like the games are happening in New Zealand and so I would have thought that they would have been like a really big thing but they they kind of they were at the training facility or the something like that and it was kind of I think that's the whole thing is like from that event I don't really know exactly what they did I don't actually know if that electric the aviation thing happened they went to the eco sanctuary which should have been good because it has flowers and that's a good opportunity but I don't really know what they saw there I some of the events I don't even think I saw images from so it just felt like and and like the royals as well they were slower to update the pages on their website that were about New Zealand than they were in Australia so it just the whole thing felt like you know the first day was a bit slow maybe we can pick it up on the second day but then I never really heard half of what happened and the bits that could have been good I never heard any you know it just it was just a lost opportunity almost yeah and it's a complaint I always have with British tours particularly the sort of Kensington Palace tours where they do like three days of brilliant social media celebratory like on them in the moment updates and then they do something at the end because they forgot to do five days in the middle they get tired they need a nap <laughs> I tend not to have that problem with Scandinavia so much particularly with Victoria and Daniel they their social media is normally um even if it's you know at the end of the day or it's normally fairly balanced with what they're giving you like they give you the information you need and then it just kind of it just didn't I was like where I just could not find information I made absolutely no notes on day four at all and on this one on the sort of the second day I was just like they did this question mark I think yeah yeah I, I honestly don't know exactly what the cause of it was but it does it did just feel like they were just doing things that they had to do and I, I missed that kind of person that that's what they bring so well Victoria and Daniel is like this personal uh friendly uh really excited enthusiastic to do anything Victoria is somebody who no matter what she's doing seems like she's having the time of her life and that's what I love about her and I felt like we didn't I'm sure she was still the same to people who were on the ground but as an observer who's in the UK I didn't get to see any of those moments or hear any of those moments rules are at their best on tour like that's when they shine and yeah you go like yeah you know I can see I can see why we have a real family because they're yeah. really good at this stuff and when you, like, that doesn't sort of feed back you're like what was the point yeah <laughs> what's the point of doing it so then the third and final day of New Zealand was they went to Hamilton uh they went which I don't know where that is um but they went there <laughs> um they started off with a re- visit to a recycling plant called Save Board which recycles packaging and plastic waste into building materials then they went to the Hamilton Gardens where they did a 
they viewed they had a tour but they had a particular tour of the maori section which is all that kind of traditional ways of growing and storing and making plants um and then they went to a dairy farm i mean again to start off with a positive thing i liked that again they they kept the maori thing it wasn't just like we'll have a welcome ceremony they actually kept that going and used you know they they could have just gone to hamilton gardens and gone we've gone to the gardens but they specifically highlighted that they were going there to view the way that maori people have passed down traditional knowledge through generations and kind of how they treat the land and all those sorts of things so i thought you know that was nice the the gardens bit i was probably my favorite just because there was a bit more of that so there was a, like loads of photographs of i don't know whether these were just random people who showed up but there was a bunch of people who showed up with <laughs> Swedish flags and hats with Swedish flags on them and Victoria and Daniel st- sort of stopped and posed with them. And so that's some really lovely photographs that we got there. They looked really happy to see them. And, you know, it was it was a very sweet kind of moment, which if it had gone earlier in the tour, might have made the tour more interesting and made it more engaging if they'd kind of had those sort of cute moments earlier on. The structure of the day, I, I think the things that they were doing were fine. Like recycling and in the environment, something they're very big on and something I think New Zealand is very big on. So it made sense. The Maori thing, I really liked that they were able to link that to the visit to the gardens. Dairy produce, production, I think agriculture is a huge industry in, in New Zealand. and um, But they had a kind of sustainability twist on it, which is something that relates to Victoria and Daniel. So the, the things were really nice. I did feel like it just ended. They went to look at some cows and then it was over. And that was weird. Yeah, it was, it was like everything they did. It was, I think in terms of like the actual, like if you took them as unique sort of engagements, Mm -hmm. they were really strong because it was their sort of passion areas, but linked really well with New Zealand or with indigenous people. And it worked fantastically. But then it was just like, we're at the dairy farm. We're in Sweden now. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was thinking, like, how do they normally end tours? Because yeah. I don't remember. Like, do they go to, to, to an airport? I don't know. It, feel, it doesn't feel like the type of thing where they would go to an airport after this, a tour like this, a kind of like a mini tour. But at the same time, I was like, they should have had like a reception or like a, cheek, a photo op, something. Well, when, when the reverse happens, when people go and visit Sweden, they always do like a goodbye so they go to the palace and there's usually a photograph of them getting in their car and the royals are like waving them off but it did just feel like there was something like if they could have had a reception at the end of this um that might have been nice or like a goodbye I don't know if there's a you know there's a welcome ceremony in traditional sort of indigenous culture is there a goodbye ceremony in indigenous culture I don't know it was a this would have been a good day too yeah that's what it felt like it felt like most of the day two stuff should have been day one things yeah Yeah. and then you could have had a mixture of this day and day one to be day two and then you could have had like that reception with the governor like that lunch with the governor general they did on day two as like their farewell they have a they have like an afternoon tea with the governor general of New Zealand and then it would all be fine you know I think New Zealand's in a sort of a different situation than Australia in terms of like their prime minister's just resigned and you know there's lots of sort of changes going on and they did have a storm which I can't blame the idea on but it probably affected the sort of day-to-day pressing pressing press coverage um but at the same time it it felt disappointing because I think Australia and New Zealand, because of where they are, they're always grouped together. Yes, yes. And they do a really good job of sort of showing themselves off at like the best they can be because they're like, right, we've got to compete with our neighbour, mm. but also not outshine them too much. 
And I don't think it's anything on New Zealand that the Australian half of the tour was significantly better than the New Zealand part. But like you said, the last time Victoria was in Australia and New Zealand was 18 years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, that might be their, la- their last time for 18 years that they're going to get to show off to Sweden. Yeah. And it just didn't quite work, which was disappointing. I don't know why, because the, as we know, the itineraries are decided by the, the hosts. It's an interesting thing. I don't know if anybody knows anything that's been going on in New Zealand over the past sort of six months or so that could explain why that happened. So, yeah, it was a tour of two halves. Maybe New Zealand just really don't like Sweden. They're sitting there going, oh, loving yeah. Swedes coming here. <laughs> I don't know what it is. But I will start that conspiracy theory unless anyone gives me a better reason. Maybe it's just a less of an important relationship to them and to Sweden. I don't know. I have to go and do some research on the history of New Zealand and Sweden's relationship. Yeah. Did they do, <laughs> did they do something to upset them? Um, it would make sense. Europe does a lot to upset a lot of people. Um, so I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> <laughs> so what do they do? Let's find out. is all we have got for this week's episode it's a bit, bit of a traditional look at this yeah. podcasting way we do things i hope you enjoyed it if you have any thoughts or any sort of secret inner understandings of the working of new zealand and sweden's diplomatic relationship please let us know and rate us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts just because that would be really nice and we'd really like that a lot we would um but <laughs> until next week it is goodbye from me and goodbye from me. 